0: 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, That it might become plain that they are all, they are all, and not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it, it has told you, abide in him.
1: Now, uh, This morning, um, as we begin, I'd like us to think about, to talk about left behind. Um, Given the passage we just had read, and assuming your memory for evangelical apocalyptic fiction um, stretching back far enough, you might think that I'm talking about the 1995 novel um, written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins that spawned the subsequent movie starring Kirk Cameron. Um, I'm not. I'm talking about us, uh, Christians, the relic of a bygone age meeting in this building, another relic from a bygone age, left behind. Uh, We have been left behind. Uh, Some of us will be acutely aware of having been left behind by individuals, by friends who were formerly keen followers of the Lord Jesus and are now nowhere. I'm speaking for myself. Um, Two of the four people who were most significant in helping me to stay Christian as a 17 or 18-year-old are no longer following the Lord Jesus at all. Uh, we've been left behind by our denomination. There's no doubt that we, and by we I mean Bible-believing evangelicals, um, there's no doubt that we are a In 1963, Bishop Robinson published um, his clarion call to update um, Honest to God. Um, his point was that given that we were living at the time in a brave new world, it was time for Christianity to get with the program and to update and to come up with a new, whole new form of Christianity that was fit For the 20th century. Even then, he was only popularizing what the theological faculties had already been saying for a century. And that was 60 years ago. And we still haven't got with the program. We've been left behind by our culture. And Callum Brown, the sociologist, dates that same year, 1963, as the year that Christian Britain died. Since at least the presidency of Barack Obama, full fledged secularism has been triumphant in the West, and we are on the wrong side of history. We've been left behind. There's been a lot of talk over the last few weeks about the Christian faith of the late Queen, but for all that we, and by we I mean those of us who've been left behind in this building, a relic of a bygone age, for all that we might like to celebrate her Christian faith, there's a a sense, isn't there, in which at least in this respect, She was King Canute, sitting on the beach, hopelessly trying to command the tide of secularism not to come in. And I read one article that described her as the last Christian monarch, the last Christian monarch not of the UK, but of the entire Western world. Her dignity, her public service beyond reproach, but her faith, well, the world has moved on. The UK in 1952 was a very different place. And she and we have been left behind. It is unsettling. There's a certain kind of courage required to be an early adopter, to be at the cutting edge, to believe something before the world is cottoned on. There is nothing courageous about being behind the curve. Mostly, it just looks like inertia. So let me ask... What does God have to say to those who have been left behind? It is our conviction here that if you want to hear what the living God says to you, it's very straightforward, you just need to read this book. And we've been working our way through a part of this book over the last few weeks, a series in 1 John, the Apostle John's first letter. He's writing as a representative of the risen Lord Jesus, and he's writing to a church that has been left behind, so here is a church that had believed John's extraordinary witness to the life that is in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But now, some of their number have moved on, repented of their youthful naivety in believing such a ridiculous message. Some of their number have started to write and to teach against them, at the zeal of a convert turned apostate, vlogging against their former friends. There's just a hint by the time you get to chapter three that that might even be backed up by force as they use violence against those that they used to be part of. It's deeply unsettling. And John's aim in this letter is to settle the Christians that he's writing to back down. 24 times he uses this same word, remain, abide, just stay. You have believed the right thing. You have joined the right family. Actually, you have come to share in eternal life. Do you know, if you're visiting here this morning, that is what is available to you here. And not just here, at any authentically Christian gathering, anywhere in the world, when you walk in, you are coming into contact with eternal life. John's big purpose is that they stay. This morning's passage opens a new section in the letter, and the aim of 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 through to 4 verse 6 is to name those who have left the Christian family behind rightly. They think that they are enlightened, ethical, obedient, advanced. But John wants those who have been left behind to realize that those who've moved on from Jesus aren't really any of those things. In fact, they are just the world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 5. Let's see where he's going by the end of this section. 1 John chapter 4, verse 5. They, that is those who have moved on from you, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them just one more expression of the same old anti-God benighted world that's been with us since the beginning. Um, Over the next three weeks, we're going to see John hold up the departed's behavior against the big theological features of the world. Uh, What he wants us to do is to recognize that those who have moved on, whether individuals or, I guess, denominations or indeed entire cultures, he wants us to recognize them for what they are by the time we get to chapter 4 we will see that they speak from the world's with well, enough context because john doesn't start in chapter 4 he starts the section here verse 15 do not love the world's or the things in the world if anyone loves the father loves the world the love of the father is not in him That's our first point this morning, the first point for the entire section. Do not love the world. It's very striking, isn't it? This is, in fact, the first direct imperative in the entire letter. We often call John the apostle of love, rightly so. But the very first thing that he directly commands this church is not to love something Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's worth taking a moment to understand, to define what John doesn't mean. He certainly isn't talking about creation as though he were saying, do not love mountains, do not love sunsets, do not love butterflies. Neither is it a wholesale rejection of all human culture as though the Bible is necessarily anti-Shakespeare, anti-Mozart, anti-Keats. Actually, that's all a bit pompous, isn't it? I can't remember the last time that I listened to, Shakespeare, listened to Mozart. Uh, plug in Canto Pop and Korean drama, if that helps. When John talks about the world here, um, he means the world as it has been organized ever since the moment that human beings first lifted their hand against God. and um, Human society organized in rebellion against God's. Actually, he gives us a flavor of what he means in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It is a picture of a grasping culture, grasping onto what you desire, grasping onto what your eyes have seen, snatching it, holding tightly, high-handedly to this momentary life. The world is humanity that saw the opportunity to snatch the crown from God and took it and is now bent over, huddled, guarding it jealously. That's what John means by the world. Of course, it is possible for songs and dances and films to be an expression of that culture, and lots of them probably are, There's nothing inherent in singing or painting or filmmaking that has to be. When John says, do not love the world, he means, do not love that way of being human in proud independence from God. And the first command that John gives to these Christians who feel left behind, did you notice, not to those who've left them behind, But to the Christians who feel left behind, the first thing he says to them as he turns to address them and to address this question of those who've left them is this, resolve this, settle this, that you do not love the world. It has to be said that this is not very 21st century, is it? We live in a culture that increasingly thinks that love in all of its forms is good and hate is bad. If you can attach the word love to something, well, it must be a blessing, a human right. If you are once dismissed as a hater, then you really have nothing more to say. And I went with my children to the Tate Modern yesterday morning. You'll understand just to run up and down the ramp, not for any other reason. Um, But whilst we were there, we saw that there's this big structure on the first floor, isn't it? About love and its goodness and how good it is. But of course, the problem with that kind of analysis is that it is possible to love the wrong thing. John's analysis is much more subtle. The question is not, do you love or do you hate? The question is, what do you love? And as a necessary corollary, what do you hate? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. There is a choice Two loves. The great theologian Augustine put it like this. There are two cities that have been formed by two loves. The earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And the heavenly city by the love of God, even to a contempt of self. It's not a question of whether you love or whether you hate. The question is, what do you love? And John says, do not love love the world. The plain fact is that there is much about human society that it is right to hate. Injustice, exploitation, greed, violence. None of us should love those things. John just goes a step further to the roots. They are just an expression of the world, human society organized in rebellion against God's. And so as he addresses those who've been left behind, as he reassures them, he starts by putting a stake in the ground. If you are going to get this moment right, if you are going to judge rightly, act rightly, you need to start with a decision. Not first of all about what you will do, not first of all about what you do love, but about about what you don't. Do not love the world. Do you know, I think this might be a very good place for us to be this morning, a good for those of us who do not yet know the Lord Jesus. It's at least worth asking the question, isn't it? Is human society organized as it is, shot through with pride and snatching and contempt of God and contempt of others? Is that something you really want to love? Could it it be that the love of the Father, the the love of the Father that reaches out and and gives and gives life is just better? It's good for all of us. Um, I'm particularly aware that there are maybe 70 or 80 students here um, this morning, and a good number of you are are new with us, um, and new perhaps to London. And you're about to make all sorts of decisions about how you want to order your lives. Which family do you want to belong to now that you're away from your biological family? And who are you going to listen to now that those you've listened to so far are no longer there? And some of those decisions are quite difficult and they require a lot of wisdom. And you're probably going to get some of them wrong. I know that I did when I was a student. But if John had one piece of advice for you this morning something to set the overall trajectory of your time in London. I think he'd say this, don't start with what you're going to do whilst you're here. Don't even start with what you think you want to think whilst you're here. Start with what you love. Actually, start with what you are resolved not to love. Decide now. Pride, coveting, Arrogance, grasping, living only for this fleeting life. Those are the things that you do not love. You love the Father. Do not love the world. But of course, the reason for starting here is that John knows that if you have decided in advance that you will not love the world, all the appeal of the voice of those who have departed Will disappear. After all, 1 John chapter 4, verse 5, they speak from the world. If you don't love the world, then that won't bother you. And what John does now, and what he's going to continue to do through the next chapter and a half, is to take the big theological categories that in the Bible describe the world: lawlessness, murder, deceit idolatry, and he's going to to hold those up against the departed, and he's going to say, look, there's the departed. There's a theological description of the world. They match. So you don't need to be unsettled by them. If you don't love the world, you don't need to listen to them, however they might self-report. If you pull back the mask, it's just the world." It's worth saying right now that John's going to say some fairly shocking things about those who have departed. But he starts with, I think, the most shocking label of all. Firstly, he says, pull back the mask and what do you see? Well, you see Antichrist. And here's the first reason that those who've left are part of the world. They are Antichrist. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, at this point, you might choke. I mean, that really is preposterous. Um, how can you possibly go about labeling people Antichrist? Uh, it's worth saying that there is a fine Christian theological tradition of doing exactly that, and it's the ultimate eschatological insult. If you're in a debate, then if you want to win, then go for Antichrist, and it'll probably help. And Here's what one commentary has to say. Nero and the Pope and Peter the Great, and Hitler, and Osama bin Laden, and Saddam Hussein, and John F. Kennedy, and Prince, now King Charles, and Ronald Reagan, and any number of a hundred other historical figures have all been identified as the Antichrist. There's a sense in which it's ridiculous, you might think, embarrassing. And then you might think, how can John be part of something so embarrassing, labelling the people he disagrees with, Antichrist? Of course when we say that what we're imagining is some sort of evil genius a blue-eyed sociopath uh, with immaculate self-presentation and I've got blue eyes but my self-presentation really doesn't cut it uh, who secretly breathes fire probably literally and you know I have a friend I have a friend who grew up believing that he might be the antichrist which when you think about it is quite a claim If you want to see the sort of thing that I'm talking about, you could watch the Left Behind film that I mentioned at the beginning. But John's point is not that those who have left this community and their faith in Jesus secretly have horns and pitchforks and five-pointed stars tattooed on their chests. He does want you to connect what they have done to that image of ultimate rebellion with Satan against the Lord God. He does want you to make that connection, but that's not what they literally are. No, the reason that they are antichrists is because they're antichrist. Just look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the father and the son. You don't have to breathe fire to express the spirit of antichrist. You don't even have to listen to thrash metal or own a system of a down hoodie. You just have to set yourself against God and against what he has done in the Lord Jesus. In fact, as you read the paragraph, you realize that these people who've left are anti-Christ in three different ways. First of all, they are anti-apostle. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Uh, The us here in this verse is apostolic, as in John is writing as one of the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus. John speaks as one of those who can testify to this extraordinary thing. The eternal life of God has burst into the world. It has broken through death into resurrection life. The son has come and John saw him. He saw him with his own eyes. He touched him. He proclaimed him. He bears witness to him. And then here is a group that had believed John previously, but now think that they can move on, that they have nothing to learn from John. They don't need to listen to him. John saw the eternal life of God appear in the world with his own eyes, but they won't listen to him. They they went out from us, he says, they were not of us. And if you're against the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus, well, you're anti-Christ. Secondly, they are anti-Christ himself, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the anti-Christ, he who denies the Father and the Son. And no one who denies the Son has the Father. But Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. They used to confess faith in Jesus, they no longer do, they deny him, but to turn against Jesus is to be anti-Christ, obviously, when you think about it. They're anti-Christ because they're anti-apostle, they're anti-Christ because they're anti-Jesus, but thirdly, they are anti-Christ because they are anti-Christ, so I don't quite know how to say that. But that's the point of all the anointing language. Did you notice it in the passage? So verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Again, verse 27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. When John talks here about the anointing, What he's talking about is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells in every Christian heart that is with us here this morning. What he's talking about is that great new covenant gift of of a transformed heart so that every Christian knows God and doesn't need to be taught by anyone else because they can all say to each other that they know the Lord. When he talks about the anointing, what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. But the choice of words is deliberate. Why does he say anointing? Well, the word Christ, it just means anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. But John wants you to understand that through Christ, you, his people, have also been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so here is a third way in which those who have left this community behind are antichrists. They've turned against their Christian brothers and sisters. They are anti the anointed one in capital letters. They are also anti all those whom the Lord has anointed. And so John wants to name them properly. They've turned against the apostles. They've turned against Jesus. They've turned against you. Let me ask, he says, what kind of a spirit is that? The spirit of antichrist. And he says, verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Antichrist is coming into the world, and look, antichrists have come. You can imagine how the conversation might have gone down. They are antichrists. But that is preposterous, they might say. How could you possibly call us antichrist? To which I think John might say, Well, if the shoe fits, if the shoe fits, I think you'd better wear it. I wonder how they described themselves. And perhaps they said that they were grown-ups who have put their childish enthusiasm for Jesus behind them. Perhaps they described themselves as enlightened. Those who've moved on from the superstition of the past. Perhaps as honest, relentless seekers after truth perhaps as those who had followed a healthy scepticism to its logical, inevitable conclusion. Perhaps actually they described themselves as obedient sons, as those who have seen the error of their earlier filial impiety and who've gone back to the religion of their ancestors. You know, how you name things, it matters, doesn't it? How you name moving on from Jesus matters. Immanuel Kant. Labeled it enlightenment. Richard Dawkins called himself and those who had moved on from the Christian gods "brights." Our current culture loves to see itself as progressive. When Josh Harris, the former Christian um, pastor, uh, posted um, the Instagram post to say that his faith was undergoing a deconstruction, and he posted an image of himself gazing out into a sunlit wilderness. Adventurous, hopeful, brave. And of course, if you think that, the implication is that those who remain are cowardly, hopeless, timid, regressive, reactionary, benighted, hateful, disobedient, Them. And if that is what you think it means to remain, well, you certainly wouldn't want to join us, would you? And you won't stay here very long. You would not want to be left behind. John wants us to name things rightly. Those who have moved away from Jesus, the apostolic Jesus, whether individuals or denominations, or indeed entire cultures, whatever they may say about themselves, what they are really displaying is just the spirit of Antichrist. It is just the world. He's not trying to be sensational. He just wants us to see things straight. There is nothing to see here. There's nothing new. And if it is new, it's only a new level of the same old thing It's just the same old story, another expression of the world, that ancient rebellion that is doomed to fail as it ever was. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so he says... I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. You know the truth. You have the spirit. You have new covenant hearts. You have come to share in eternal life. Just stay. You know, the tragedy of the whole thing in 1 John is what the departed have moved on from. And it seems to me that this is a good place for us to end this morning. Why should we be content to be left behind? And why might you like to join us if you're not yet a Christian? Well, the John who wrote this letter really did see something incredible with his own eyes. Eternal life, the life and the light of God, burst into the darkness of this world. And because John saw that, he really did see it, it gave him a message to proclaim, a word of light in the darkness, a word of forgiveness to those who need it, a word of victory over evil, a word of love, not the twisted love of the world, but the eternal and self-giving love of the Father. A word of joy and fellowship and inclusion in the very family of God. In a word, life. Life that begins now and life that will last forever. A day will come when our current culture has long since been forgotten. The world is passing away along with its desires. But something will remain. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so John says, do not love the world. And do not let those who speak from the world deceive you. Let's pray together. Living God, our heavenly father, we praise you so much for what we have come to share in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that we are your children, that we are forgiven, that we share in the promise of life. And Father, we pray that you would help us never to be unsettled by any who would take that from us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.